0: So today, um, we're going to preach on something that, at least in all the years I grew up in church, I didn't hear a lot about. And maybe you've been fortunate that that's not been the case for you, but if it has, then I hope that this uh, these next few minutes will be comforting for you and challenging. I'll say at the beginning, there are a lot of, uh, so my daughter's still here because, well, because she wanted to hear the sermon, and because she likes hanging out. But there's a lot of young kids who have gone to children's church today. If you have a child, this might be one of those sermons that you want to talk to them about. Uh, you're going to have to think through it yourself, but this is one of those that I'm, I'm a little sad that they're not going to be able to be here to hear, but it would be nice for those of you who are parents or grandparents in the room to take this as an opportunity to, to dive into this a little bit after this morning, and then maybe bring it into your conversations with your family. Um, I'll also say that there are gonna be a, there's going to be a lot of Scripture read. We're, going, we're sort of looking at a theme through Scripture, and what that usually means is we're covering a lot of ground in like 20 or 30 minutes. And so this will be one of those times where sometime this week I'm going to put up what we would call a works cited page or footnotes for this sermon. So that if you're flipping through and saying, I don't think that's in the Bible, at some point you'll see where it is that I'm reading from or what it is we're talking about. Um, so... Just a couple of disclaimers at the front end here. Um, But I want to talk for today about an expansive view of who God is. Uh, And if you've ever been to my office, just down that hallway to the left, you'll notice that every once in a while I'll put up a big piece of butcher paper, and on that butcher paper I'll write some prompt, and most of the time it's just kids who draw on my board, So one time I asked uh, to draw a candle. One time I asked for all the kids to draw themselves. Well, actually for all the people to draw themselves. Um, This is one that I would put up if I had a butcher paper up right now. Um, But to ask you to draw God. It's a a terrifying proposition. But real quick, I want to... uh, (laughs) I want to ask you where you are, either to take like a pen or just close your eyes or just think in your mind. Whenever you hear God or you hear Lord, what do you see? It's a really simple question, but it has profound implications for what we're going to talk about next. So when you think about God, when you think about your Lord, that part of the Trinity that we call Father... What do you see? I'm not asking. You don't have to answer out loud. Just in your own mind, see what it is that comes to mind. I was in a Sunday school class teaching for Joey because he's out with the youth right now at Midwinter Retreat, and uh, someone brought up in the class. We were talking about God's name in Exodus three, and we talked about how hard it is to try and wrap our minds around things we don't understand or what we would call mysteries. And so, what we always do is we say, "Well, this is like that." We talk in metaphor, or in simile, or in or an analogy. And I think when we come to God, it's the same sort of thing. Well, how in the world could we picture God, but how could we not? That's just what we do. So I did the, a Google search because that's how we, that's the authority on everything these days, did you know? And uh, did anybody, let's just have a moment of clarity, did anybody have in their mind's eye something similar to these images? I do. I mean, I can't help it. I always see these sort of things. Um, I mean, a lot of these are famous, either etchings or paintings. You've got Michelangelo up there, you've got William Blake's um, illustration as well. These are all different images uh, for God. What do they all have in common? Have beards. beards. God has a beard. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Male, yeah. Anything else striking about these? They're all, they all seem older and Caucasian. N- yeah, I don't think if I close my eyes, I picture like 17-year-old God. You know what I mean? But yeah, there's this maturity here. There is a, How could we not, when we draw or image the person of God, that it not have some sense of gender, some sense of race? I mean, how do you draw a raceless person? That's just not a thing we know how to do. And so there's a particularity to all of these images, and yet we would all say, because even in the question there's a hesitancy in the answers that I've gotten from you all, that this is inadequate in some sense, that this gets us part of the way. And for some of us, this may be incredibly comforting. It's like when we looked at um, Salmon's Head of Christ, that really famous picture of Christ that's sort of backlit and really lovely, and that image holds a lot of meaning for folks, but not everyone. Uh, so this is from 1 Timothy 6. A God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who alone is immortal, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To Him be honor and might forever. Amen. It's this line right here, though, that I want to stick on for a second. God, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. This is how. The writer from First Timothy talks about it. Uh, there's a psalmist who talks about that God dwells in thick clouds of darkness. And they're both getting at the same idea that, that we have this innate desire to draw close to the God who we feel called by, and yet there is a, there is a mystery that is hard, hard to get past. There is the God who dwells in unapproachable light or in thick clouds and deep darkness. And so as much as we try, there is always a limit to our words, to our speech and our language. God is like this or God is like that. And yet when we say that, we know we're not actually containing who God is. How could we? Language is a funny thing, though. So if I were to tell you about... um, about a person, I said to you that this is how I describe them to you, right? They have green eyes, medium length curly hair, about five eight, English and Irish or uh, English and German descent. Do you know who I'm talking about here? Drives a white Chevy, born in August. Who is this? Probably my wife, because I don't know this many facts about any of you. Uh, this is not how I describe my wife when I talk to anyone about her. Why? This would be ridiculous. This is like describing a recipe for something you don't really want to eat. Um, (laughs) Even when you describe like a food you love, you don't talk about it in that way. Uh, You talk about it in ways that are of the heart. And it it are ways that will stretch language. Um, It's Valentine's Day. I'm not going to get really gushy. You know how I feel. That's language. (laughs) Even just saying that, it, it says something about both the limits of language and how expansive they are. Uh, if you look at the book of the Song of Songs, at the way that that couple talks to each other, it is an overflowing of language. It's like a fawn. It's like, it's like a cluster of grapes. It's like the mountains. It's like the sky. It's like the sun. It's like a garden. And none of that is the beloved. But the language doesn't do the trick, and so we keep stretching it and stretching it and stretching it. Language it, it overflows. And yet at the same time, it falls short. Now, this is true when we speak of anything that matters to us, whether it's one we love, but how much more so, even more so, when we start to talk about God. Now, often the way that we uh, hear God spoken about in, in the Bible, and even this is the way that Jesus would speak about God, is as Father. That's not the only image we get in the Bible for God. God is father or God God is mother or or something. So here's just two scriptures. Um, The first one is obviously from the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and on it goes. And then this next one here. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? Though she may forget you, I will never forget you. You have, in the witness of scripture a diversity for who God is, an expansiveness of language. Father is not all that could contain who God is to us. It's a way that we we enter into that relationship, but it isn't the only way. So on Mondays, we have our sermon study group, which is anywhere from five to ten folks, and we sit around for an hour and talk about the sermon. And when we talked about this sermon, I wrote up on the board, masculine and feminine. And I just said, let's talk about what these two terms mean. What are some descriptors that you either have heard or that you know culture subscribes to or that maybe you do? What are feminine traits and what are masculine traits? And this is the list that we came up with. This is not all inclusive. You would have your own items to add to this list. But, but just look at the two sides of the table for a second. <laughs> I didn't say that one. I know who said it, but I'm not going to tell you. Yeah, yeah. So uh so on the masculine side of things and And as you hear these, see if this resonates with some of what you've inherited. Maybe not some of what you find your own convictions to be, but maybe that which was given to you in subtle and not-so-subtle ways over time. There is a a masculine way to be in the world, and then there's a feminine way to be in the world. And and those have their own spheres of influence and characteristics and the ways that you would embody that kind of, of side of the spectrum. So on the masculine side, you've got Brave, although Pixar's movie Brave would really cut against that one. Um, you've got stoic, stern, stable, action. Okay. On this, (laughs) I didn't write the list, folks. (laughs) On this side of the, on this, of the list is feminine things. And yes, illogical is on the top. Um, emotional. So some of these are kind of, are opposites for one side or the other. You've got Stoic on one side, this sort of unmovable, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, the masculine side of things is is stable. And then on the other side is feeling all of that emotion that comes along with that experience and blown hither and yonder. If anyone says amen, I'm in big trouble and so are you. But then you've got other things here, gentle, chaos, which is the opposite, I think, of stability. Process, rather than action, this is sort of what we talked about, that it, and maybe a more masculine disposition. You see a task, and you, you just do that task. And then for this other side, maybe there's a, a slowness to the process. Well, have we gotten all the facts yet? Have we talked to everyone involved? Have we slowed this down a little bit? Have we got, this is a different way, conversational. And then I love this last one. I can't remember who said it. Vulnerable. Um. Now, what we're not talking about here is males and females because that would be crazy because every one of you in this room can find yourself, you would make your own list, but you would find yourself a mixture of all of these things. But that's complicated, and when we talk about things that matter, it's tempting to simplify them. Uh, so like one pastor said, and this is an incredibly famous evangelical pastor, uh, This is what he said about Christianity. God has given Christianity a masculine feel. So when you look at the list, what he's saying, subtly and not so subtly, is that this is the God side of things, and this is the non-God side of things. That this is where we should be headed toward. This is the image and likeness of God, and then this is the maybe image and likeness of frail, fragile, and fallen us. That's a subtle but, but very true way that this gets spun at times. God has given Christianity a masculine feel. Uh, I was showing this to, to Corey, and she said, just flip it all around. And that's actually what's happening here is that Christianity has given God an only forever just masculine feel. Let's take a breath for a second because we're not in the deep end yet. So what do you do as followers of God who are trying our very best to understand who God is? If our language is insufficient, what do we say? Do we obliterate all vestiges of either side of that spectrum? How would that work? I mean, we are embodied people, after all, with a particularity all our own. So, so is it our Father in heaven? Because this doesn't sound very good to me. Does it sound very good to anybody in the room? Our great spiritual being who is in heaven that is both non, not poetic at all and also it doesn't get me any closer to where I'm headed. Um, but this is scary. I've never gotten in as much trouble before at a previous church than when I preached a sermon and said the word she for spirit. The line was something to the effect of, um, but the spirit blows where she will, doesn't she? And the room almost threw up. So I thought, why not do a whole sermon on that thing that got me in trouble? (laughs) We're going to go through some scripture, though, because this is how we do things uh, in the church, is we go back to our tradition, back to our sources, back to that which we understand and, and encounter God's revelation. And so these are some of what we're going to look at here. Wisdom, womb, nursing, mother, and spirit. This is just a small subsection of the different ways that God is described in the Bible. For instance, the prophets, even just the book of Hosea, describes God as a bunch of different animals. Now, we don't think that God is really a lion or really an eagle, but we're working with the language we've been given. Uh, so let's start here with wisdom. Wisdom uh, is a term that shows up all over the Bible, and, and any time it shows up, it, it's feminine. They're, in the Greek, it's the word Sophia. We have some Sophias in our church, and I always tell them, do you know what your name means? It means wise one, or one who has wisdom. Uh, it is uh, hakma in the Hebrew language, also a feminine word. It mostly shows up in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 8 is an entire chapter on the wisdom that is woven into the fabric of creation. But, but Paul in Romans 11, let's read here. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable is judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Again, in 1 Corinthians from Paul. But those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. There's this book that we don't read in our Bibles. If, if we did, it would be somewhere... Oh, in here, it's called the intertestamental literature. And it's not part of our canon of Scripture, but for Jesus and Jesus' followers, they are echoing these books over and over and over again. So there's a section called Wisdom. It's a book called Wisdom, and it reads like this. For she is a breath of the power of God and a pure emanation of the glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her. For she is a reflection of eternal light, a spotless mirror of the working of God, and an image of his goodness. Now, you all are going to say, that doesn't matter, because that's not our Bible. That's something else. But listen to the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews leans heavily into this passage when it talks about Jesus. He is the reflection of God's glory in the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word, when he has made purification for sins, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The book of John starts out, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word for word is the word logos. And logos and Sophia, Sophia is wisdom, and logos is word, over time they sort of become one and the same in Greek thought. It's the animating spirit of the world. And the Old Testament would say that wisdom, or logos, was there at the beginning of creation. This is what John 1 says. If you go back and you read that poem that begins the gospel, that, that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word was with God in the beginning. Before there was light, the Word was light. Wisdom becomes this part of God's personhood. The Psalms echo this. book of Proverbs echo this. Even our own creation narrative has hints of this. Wisdom becomes another way to even talk about the spirit or the third person of the Trinity. Now here's the thing. Whenever there were many gods, it was a lot easier to figure this stuff out because you knew who Zeus was. You knew what Zeus looked like. You knew what Zeus acted like. You knew where Zeus's favorite place to hang out was. You knew who Zeus's wife was. And you had all of these gods, and so you could place the, like, stoic gods over here, and you could place the emotional gods over here, and I guess the illogical gods somewhere. I don't know where they went. But when you have a lot of gods, you can separate all of this diversity into disparate parts and say that belongs over there and that belongs over here. But when you talk about our God, we always talk about the Lord in unity, in oneness, in wholeness, that's represented, well, in trinity or in diversity. And so you take all of these things and you say, actually, no, this aspect doesn't belong over here to something else outside of God, but God encompasses all of these things. When you move toward one God or monotheism, you end up with a plethora of characteristics. There was a danger in the early church, though, that there were folks who would worship Sophia as a separate god, as a separate goddess, actually. And so the early church was very nervous to talk too much about this aspect of God because it shaded towards something that was, was very dangerous to the early church. All right, let's move on from wisdom to womb. You saw some of these readings uh, in the reflective reading for the service from Deuteronomy. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Or Isaiah, I've kept still for a very long time, and I've been silent and restrained myself. Like a woman in labor, I will moan, I will pant, I will gasp. Or again from Isaiah, can a woman forget her nursing child, fail to pity the child of her womb? Even these may forget, but I won't forget you. At our Ash Wednesday service, Joey offered a homily or a sermon, and he talked about how the word for womb in the Hebrew Scriptures is the same word as the word for compassion or for mercy. Pope Francis just released his first book, and for those of you who follow um, Catholicism and the work that's coming out of that side of the faith, the name of the book, if somebody knows it, correct me if I'm wrong, um, the Lord's name is Mercy. Uh, is, I believe, what it's called. That there is something central about God's character that is is mercy or or is compassion. Or you could say that is womb-like. Nursing is a a little bit more difficult, but we're still going to read those scriptures too. I don't know why it's more difficult. It's just not something it's talked about in church very much. But from Hosea, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, I who took them in my arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bands of love. I was to them like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and I fed them. That image of bending down and feeding. If you've spent time with a nursing mom, you know exactly what that looks like. And that's the image that the prophet Hosea is giving us here for God. I could keep going back and show you those pictures again of all the most popular ways to see God, and I've not seen a drawing of that God. But this is part of our tradition. This is part of our scripture. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Mother. From Deuteronomy. Like the eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, God spreads wings to catch you and carries you on pinions. From Isaiah, listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnants of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born. Again from Isaiah, as a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So the New Testament, Luke 13, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is Jesus looking out over the city as he's headed to his death. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. How often I have desired to gather you together as a mother hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing For the Hebrew people, as they were articulating their faith in God over against the faith of their neighbors and their many gods. All those gods, particularly the female gods, were imaged as birds. So when you hear this language of a mother hen or an eagle, what those early Jewish believers were doing, they were taking that imagery and they they were bringing it over and saying, no, actually, we... Have the entire story right here. It's not a separate deity. Our God is one. It's like a mother hen or like an eagle that spreads her wings over her nest. I love this last one, though, from Hosea. <clears throat> there are some mothers out here that fit this description. Or you had a mother like this. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and I will tear them asunder. Does, any, does that resonate with anyone out here? And lastly, spirit. The word for spirit in the Greek language is pneuma. The word for spirit in the Hebrew language is ruach. Both of them are, again, one of these words that is expansive. It means both spirit, but it also means wind, and it also means breath, all at the same time. In Genesis 1, when it talks about the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, it's that same word, ruach. Or when we are breathed into the breath of God, it's that same Spirit. Or in our reading from John 3 this morning, where the Pharisee named Nicodemus shows up, comes to Jesus at night in hiding to make a confession and then ask some questions. Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again or born from above. And then Nicodemus asks what is a very logical question. And we say this a lot, at least I've grown up saying it and heard it said to me, that Christians are those who are born again. This is a really familiar phrase for our our version of Christianity and faith, to be born again. And yet, I'm not sure if I've ever really interrogated how strange of a saying that is. But Nicodemus does it for us, and maybe you have as well. How in the world is this possible? What am I going to do? Get back into my mother's womb? That sounds like a terrible idea. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You shouldn't be surprised that I'm saying this, that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound and you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. This idea of being born again, i have always known that that's one of the central images for what it means to enter into life with God through Christ. To be born again or to be born anew or to be born from above. But what I never thought about is the one who births me. Sort of stop the image just at me. But on the other side of that image of being born again is the God who gives birth to me and to you, to new life. It says that in Christ there is a new creation, a new thing has been born in the world. That takes a lot of work and a lot of groaning and panting and and sweating. You could say it like this, that God is the one who labors and who contracts and groans and pushes and sweats at night, pacing the hospital halls, holding onto the wall to keep from falling, screams, focuses her breath to birth us. That is not an image of God I am used to. Yet there is something there for me. There is a womb-like fierceness that a mother has for her young. We've all had a mother. Every one of us came into this world from a womb. And God is like that too. God has carried you. God has labored to bring you to the newness of life at a great cost. None of us get into this world with an easy path. It is brutal for both the one being born and the one giving birth. In fact, for Christ, it was brutal to the point of death. One of my favorite new poets that I've discovered and Corey introduced me to, I can't pronounce her first name, can you? But her last name is Wahid. W-A-H-E-E-D. W-A-H-E-E-D. Her book of poems is called Salt and they are amazing. She's an African American woman and she writes with all the passion and fury of her tradition. This is her poem called Lands. My mother was my first country, the first place I ever lived. It's a story about a uh, a birth and a young girl is born the mother is in labor for what's too long in conditions that are too harsh with vital signs that are dangerous and this girl is born into the world but it takes every bit of the mother's strength to get her here and like happened a lot back in the day, and happens still, but not as often, the mother didn't make it past getting this new life into the world. And so daughter goes home with father, but without mother. And father is broken. How could he not be? And there's a distance between this new girl and this dad. And over time, it grows because, well, she reminds him of her. And he finds, he finds the bottle. He finds language that rips and tears relationships asunder. And she spends most of her time as she grows up hidden away in her room for fear of him. And she goes to church and she's taught to pray, and the prayer goes something like, Our Father who art in heaven. But the words they catch, how could they not? Father is a difficult term for her. And if God is only like this this man, then she doesn't know how to get there. There is in this little girl's imagination a compassionate and comforting, merciful presence. She wants, she needs, and she misses. She needs God to be close, but to have to say, only be able to say, my Father who is in heaven, she, she just can't get there. She misses her, and she misses God. Julian of Norwich. one of the great writers of the Christian faith. She wrote, As truly as God is our father, so truly is God also our mother. And John Calvin from the Reformation says, God did not satisfy himself with proposing the example of a father, but in order to express his very strong affection, he chose to liken himself to a mother and calls his people not merely children, but the fruit of the womb towards which there is usually a warmer affection. There is a side of God that we are missing. There is a a side of the list that if we ignore, we starve out our faith. Our language is always an approximation, but we should do our best to continue to stretch it out. Scripture does the same for us. If you are someone there who's sitting and thought, I don't know how to get to God. And the language that has been handed to me is also oh insufficient. Keep reading. Keep listening. God is always Bigger. God has given everything to birth you into this world. Christ has given everything to birth you into new life. May it be so. May your eyes be opened, your hearts be opened to the God who asks to carry you still. Let's pray. Dear God, we don't always know the way to you, how to approach. Whether you're behind light or behind clouds and darkness, you seem to be just out of reach. So as we search for you, would you please search for us? Hold us like a mother holds her young. Feed us as a mother feeds her beloved. Tend to us, and in all of your fierce love, bring us to new life. Though it may wrench and tear you apart, this is what you say you will do for us whom you love so much. Thank you that you've made us sons and daughters. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.